Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, November 27th, 2023, the 1041st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So we have been away since Wednesday of last week, Thanksgiving Eve, and I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, a wonderful weekend, had some good food, some good drinks, maybe watched some football, maybe just enjoyed the presence of your loved ones, or perhaps you were toiling away throughout the last four days on behalf of those same loved ones, or maybe you just lead a life of drudgery and you were working through the weekend down in the mines. But a whole lot has happened since then, and some of that whole lot that's happened happened Wednesday, right after I posted the show. And so I hope that catching up on some of that stuff doesn't feel like old news four or five days later, but some of it is important because it maps on to the major subjects that we consistently discuss on this show. Now, last week before the Thanksgiving holiday, I think it was actually on Tuesday's episode, I was talking about how there are often some pretty strange and significant events that wind up happening in the news that turn into a weird distraction from holidays. And I mentioned the 2009 shoe bomber on Christmas Day and then 
the 2020 Christmas Day bombing in Nashville. Well, on Wednesday, we had what looked initially to be an event along those lines, a new terrorist attack that would dominate holiday discussions around the Thanksgiving table. Here is a description of that event from WHAS News in Louisville, Kentucky, linked to a Western Journal article I'm going to get to in just a second. But this is a nice little rundown. Developing story out of the New York, out of New York at the Canadian border. You see flames in the video off to my right. Authorities say they are investigating after a vehicle crashed and exploded on the Rainbow Bridge near Niagara Falls, killing two people. The shocking video was caught on camera. You can see as the car goes flying airborne there in the back of the picture. The car flies out of frame before officials say it crashed at a secondary U.S. checkpoint, bursting into flames. Authorities say the driver was going upwards of 100 miles an hour and clarified that it was the high rate of speed that led to the crash and are trying to emphasize that this was not a terrorist attack. I want to be very, very clear to Americans and New Yorkers. At this time, there is no indication of a terrorist attack. The incident happened just before noon yesterday and prompted the closure of all four international border crossings between the western New York and Canada. Except for the Rainbow Bridge, they have all reopened at this point. There was a Border Patrol officer working in the booth at the time of the crash who suffered minor injuries. The Niagara Falls Police Department is still investigating. Now that's a pretty strange story. A car that you can see in this video goes flying into the air and flies like a hundred plus feet in the air. The car looks like it goes off of a ramp set up for a car to go off of and then flies through the air like the Dukes of Hazard. If you gave this video to someone without the context of this national news story and you said, what do you see here? They would tell you that they think it looks like a movie stunt because it does look like a movie stunt. And there's almost no way to even imagine something like this happening in reality. And the reaction to this story makes it even stranger. So initially, all sorts of people start posting online about how this is a potential international terrorism incident, something to do with the border between America and Canada. There's been a bombing. There's been an attack. Something is going on. There is terrorism the day before Thanksgiving. And as you heard from the illegitimate governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, there is no indication of a terrorist attack. So what do we have? We have video of a car that looks like it goes off a ramp, flies a hundred plus feet in the air, flipping over sideways, crashing, bursting into flames. We're told two people are dead. We're told this definitely is not terrorism by various officials after all sorts of media and influencers said, oh, this is terrorism. Then we get a statement from the FBI that evening that says FBI Buffalo has concluded our investigation at the scene of the Rainbow Bridge incident. A search of the scene revealed no explosive materials and no terrorism nexus was identified. The matter has been turned over to the Niagara Falls Police Department as a traffic investigation. The FBI thanks our local, state, and federal law enforcement partners for their assistance, and we remain committed in our mission to keeping the public safe. According to that news report, four border crossings between the United States and Canada were closed down. Three of them, not the Rainbow Bridge where the explosion happened, were soon reopened. The FBI concluded its investigation in just an afternoon. Okay, so it's definitely not a terrorist attack. And immediately the coverage shifts to, hey, look at all of these Republicans who called this a terrorist attack and tried to make a point about our open borders and our immigration problems. Our old friend, Ewanon Palmer from Newsweek, Ewan Palmer, the guy over at Newsweek who covers everything conspiracy theory and QAnon related, that Ewanon Palmer wrote an article for Newsweek, full list of Republicans who called Canada border explosion a terrorist attack. 
And he cites the posts of Ted Cruz, Byron Donalds, Rick Scott, Anna Paulina Luna, Vivek Ramaswamy, Corey Mills, Ronnie Jackson, Andy Biggs, Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania, Claudia Tenney, Kerry Lake, and Donald Trump Jr. Now, most of those names are fairly prominent names in the America First movement and some more establishment, quote unquote, conservatives. And that's a little odd. You wouldn't expect these people to immediately react or get tricked by the news. This was fairly widely reported. They probably felt like they were on solid ground. They saw the video. They heard the explanation of the video. They assumed these people must have looked into this and they went with it at worst, right? I don't know what was going on in their heads, but for most people, Seeing headlines in the mainstream media and reacting to those headlines, that's how they, quote unquote, participate in our politics. Now, I think I'm pretty safe in saying that our community in particular is probably the most patient when it comes to this stuff. It's kind of a common practice to take a wait and see approach 48 hours, 72 hours especially when a story immediately has some really strange elements. But even the best of us make mistakes on this sort of thing every now and then. So it's embarrassing when it happens, but it's not the biggest deal in the world, especially not when dealing with people who think that masks work still and believe that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. They can try to embarrass us on this stuff, but it really never lands because these people are wrong about everything all the time. But there's something about this story that's really strange, and there's some reason why they're trying to score this particular point about this story. They want everybody to know this thing definitely isn't terrorism. It really happened, but it's definitely not terrorism. According to the FBI, illegitimate New York governor, Kathy Hochul and the Department of Homeland Security's illegitimate secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. These are the people out there telling us this is definitely not terrorism. Now, I'm not saying it is terrorism. If you wanted me to place odds on what I think it is, I wouldn't place any odds on terrorism. I also wouldn't place great odds on any of this event being real because the car goes off a ramp and flies in the air a really long way and then has an enormous explosion. But there was no sign of explosive materials found anywhere. But my purpose ultimately isn't to come down on any particular viewpoint regarding this event. I'm not trying to convince you it's fake, but I am saying, look at this. We go from, oh no, this is a massive international terrorist event to the story being completely gone like eight hours later. It's been disavowed by authoritative sources, the governor of New York, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, both of them in their roles in completely illegitimate fashion. And the FBI, after concluding its investigation in just a few hours, a potential international terrorist event. That's how it went out in the news. And the FBI concludes their investigation in a few hours. Everybody disavows the original reports and the story disappears completely. It reminds me of last year when after the Mar-a-Lago raid, we were told that MAGA was going to go after and attack federal law enforcement officials. And like the next day, somebody goes to the Cincinnati FBI field office with a nail gun and attacks the field office with a nail gun, then leads the FBI on a high speed chase that ends with him being shot by the FBI. Oh, and this guy had a profile on Truth Social. So now we need to take Truth Social down. Now, if you're the sort of person who thinks that the things that we see on TV and hear on TV and on podcasts and on the radio and read in the newspapers and the magazines and online and social media, the things that the influencers say, if you think that all of that can't be orchestrated in a way to create an entirely false reality, 
of only false stories that seems to, in an important enough way, map onto the reality you experience to the point where most people don't know the difference. I don't know what to tell you. The video genuinely looks like something from a movie set, which becomes the basis for a national news story about an international terrorist attack. Multiple international borders get closed and then reopened. The FBI investigates for a few hours. All the authoritative sources tell us it's definitely not terrorism, and it is very likely we will never hear about this event ever again. But people still think it's all real. They still think that the media is trying as hard as it can in good faith to report the truth and that regardless, they're still the best, if not only source of information available. This could have been nothing more than a misinterpreted video that turned into national news. And because of that, we ended up with four international borders closed and officials making official statements. No matter what the ultimate version of this story indicates, you should be able to see pretty clearly how an event that may be fake from its very roots can affect actual real world events. And hey, thank goodness we didn't have to spend Thanksgiving weekend thinking about flying car bombs. There is really ultimately no explanation for any of this. The Western Journal article, by the way, is called Government Walks Back Terrorism Claim After Car Explodes on U.S.-Canadian Border. Here is the explanation for why this happened. Niagara Falls Mayor Robert Restaino said that the passengers aboard were a couple between their late 40s and early 50s whom investigators believe were traveling from the Seneca Niagara Resort and Casino near the accident site, according to the Times. This is the New York Times. According to investigators, the man in the car was a New York State resident who planned to attend a KISS concert in Canada. Upon learning that the concert was canceled, the man headed to a casino in the United States, CNN reported. So they don't know how old this man or his wife or girlfriend is, but they do know that he was going to go see a KISS concert. And once KISS canceled, they turned that car around, tried to head to a casino, and instead drove their sedan at like 150 zillion miles an hour up a Hot Wheels ramp flying off into the air where they crashed in an enormous explosion and died. And it definitely, definitely, without a doubt, was not terrorism. Last week, we talked about the election of the far-right populist in Argentina, Javier Millet. On Wednesday evening, we had news of a massive victory for the far-right in the Dutch elections this headline in NPR from Thursday, party of far-right populists set for stunning victory in Dutch election. He has called Islam a backward religion. He's named the prophet Muhammad a pedophile. He wants to ban mosques. And now Hirt Wilders and his party are poised to win the Dutch national election by a wide margin. Wilders, a politician who has made a name for himself, through his anti-Islam and anti-European Union rhetoric, appears to be in the lead in the Netherlands election with the most parliamentary seats according to early results. The Dutch voter has spoken, said the 60-year-old, in a victory speech Wednesday evening at a cafe in The Hague. We will ensure that the Netherlands will return to the Dutch. And that would be the equivalent of Donald Trump saying that he is returning America back to Americans. They are essentially using the same language. Early election results show Wilders Party for Freedom winning 37 seats in the 150 seat Dutch parliament, 12 seats ahead of its closest rival, the Labour Green Alliance, led by EU climate policy veteran Franz Timmerman. So the far right populist party widely outperforming its next closest competitor, the Labour Green Alliance. 
The Guardian in the UK went with this headline yesterday. Heert Wilder's win shows the far right is being normalized. Mainstream parties must act. And they talk about how Wilders himself, for the most part, is a typical populist focused on issues like immigration, the problems with multiculturalism, damage done by the elites, etc. The author of The Guardian piece, Steen Van Kessel, writes, None of this has stopped Wilders becoming part of the political furniture. As the longest serving member of the Dutch parliament, he could present himself as a reasonable alternative to the Putin supporting and blatantly conspiracist Forum for Democracy led by Thierry Baudet, which lost five of its eight seats in parliament. Now, Thierry Baudet has made multiple appearances over the last couple of years on War Room. So he's that kind of conspiracy theorist. And last week, just two days before the election, he was reportedly assaulted. This is from November 20th in Reuters. Dutch far-right candidate Baudet assaulted two days before election. According to the report, Baudet was struck in the back of the head with a beer bottle and struck on his temple. Images of the incident, which took place in a bar, are circulating on social media, along with images of police arresting a suspect outside. The motive was not known. So the conspiracy theorists are getting assaulted and losing seats in parliament. But the big story is about how the far right populist, one of the longest serving members of the Dutch parliament, his party has won the most seats in their parliament. And it's worth mentioning that the outgoing prime minister is Mark Ruta, who is a fairly prominent global regime, World Economic Forum type in Europe, who is said to be the front runner for the job of NATO chief once Jens Stoltenberg steps down. And this, according to reports from Bloomberg last week, the Guardian article concludes this way. All this signifies the normalization of far right politics. In 2000, when the Austrian Freedom Party entered a coalition, other countries widely condemned the move and the EU imposed diplomatic sanctions. In 2023, it is common for European countries to be governed by far-right parties, often in collaboration with center-right parties. Next June's European Parliament elections will surely see many voting for far-right parties again. And so you got to think about the dynamic here between these far-right parties and these center-right parties. If we use America as an analogy, the far-right party, the equivalent of that, would be the Donald Trump MAGA America First populist movement. And if that is working together with the center-right party, the Republican establishment, then we essentially have a situation like Donald Trump's first term. And while Donald Trump was able to have an extremely successful first term, and MAGA has now completely taken over the Republican Party, five years ago, six years ago, what would have been seen to the outside as the far-right group working with the center-right group, what we actually had was half of the Uniparty doing everything it could to thwart any move by the populist right to block or divert from that global regime agenda as it was in place through the Uniparty. And then, of course, the hand-wringing. Mainstream politicians have a moral obligation to uphold liberal democratic norms. While citizens' concerns about cultural change and immigration can be legitimate, there is something fundamentally problematic about the far right's idea of a quote-unquote leading culture. Society is inherently diverse, comprising individuals and groups with differing values and preferences. The voter in quotes, a term repeatedly used by Dutch politicians to suggest that citizens are united in their beliefs, does not exist. Mainstream parties should recognize this and steer well clear of the far right's anti-liberal frame that there is a quote unquote general will. So this author is arguing there is no general will. This is an associate professor in European politics at Queen Mary University in London. There is no general will. There is not some priority that the people collectively prefer or possess in full. But this author does assert that there are individuals and groups 
with differing values and preferences. So a group can have different values and preferences, just not the group in its entirety. And of course, that makes no sense. And it obviously makes no sense. But it's the sort of argument you have to make when you don't want to allow for the possibility that the people collectively might, and in fact do, believe all sorts of things that directly conflict with the globalist agenda for any country and particularly in Europe. This author says in no uncertain terms that mainstream politicians have a moral obligation to uphold liberal democratic norms. And apparently this holds true even in the face of the people collectively wanting something that constitutes some violation of supposed liberal democratic norms from the perspective of a supporter of the global regime, as this author clearly is. About 10 days ago, we discussed the pure, unbridled panic being expressed by the editors of The Economist in response to what seems to be an emergent understanding that Donald Trump will be returning as the publicly recognized president of the United States of America, and they are similarly panicking about the results of the Dutch election. The headline of their article calls the win a headache for Europe. Hard-right parties are now part of the political landscape, they say. I'm not going to go through the full article, but there are a few sections worth noting. They write, in the Netherlands, it may prove all but impossible to cobble together a coalition without the 37 seats out of 150 of the Party of Freedom, the party Mr. Wilders leads. They're talking about how in years past... European parliaments were essentially able to ignore the far right and populist movements because their numbers were so small that coalitions could be formed without them. Majority coalitions could be formed without them. And because of that, the governments would still be able to move forward, just ignoring that the populists even existed. Kind of makes it sound like Europe has a more advanced version of our uniparty. Rather than two parties or potentially three or four with the Libertarians and the Green Party all acting together as the uniparty, these traditional third party candidates in our country, at least probably dating back to Ross Perot. I'm excluding Ross Perot by saying that, by the way, but these third party candidates essentially acting as a spoiler, a reason why people can say, oh, they took votes away from the person who lost, and that's why he lost. Especially with the understanding of stolen elections, it's easy to see these third-party candidates as simple narrative devices. They're useful in making the already pre-selected result seem plausible. And we can see the battle already to declare what sort of effect Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to have on the presidential race next year. But think about it if you have six or seven or eight parties and those parties have to form a majority coalition at any point to get whatever piece of the global regime's agenda is being discussed over the finish line. On certain uniparty left issues, they cobble together some coalition of mostly the leftist parties with some of the more center right parties on the equivalent of our uniparty right issues they cobble together some sort of different coalition. Certain people are able to cross over one way or another because they're the centrists. They're the moderates. That's just what they do. They're the people who are willing to help either side of the uniparty at any time, so long as they don't have to take a position on their own that they might eventually get punished for. They're very valuable left there in the nice, safe middle. So if Wilders and his party are to be trusted as the Dutch parallel to MAGA, then the situation as it now exists is kind of a parallel to what we saw in the U.S. House of Representatives led by Matt Gates. We have enough of a coalition there, whether it's eight or it's 20 or it's 50 or it's 75. It's hard to know exactly how much MAGA there is in the current list of Republican House members at this point. But while it's not a majority, it is enough that they have to be reckoned with. They get to weigh in. They have some amount of actual power. Without them, the Republican majority can't do anything on its own. If it wants to push policy, 
without actively recruiting Democrat members to go along with it, then it has to be policy that's approved of by these people. And then, of course, we also saw Matt Gates exercise the motion to vacate. So the point here is now there are not only far right populists in office, but they actually have a voice in the Dutch parliament. They have to be dealt with. The article goes on. Such electoral outcomes were once a prompt for pan-continental pearl clutching and recrimination. Now they have become just about commonplace. This is something we used to hear about quite a lot in 2016 and 2017, the worldwide movement toward populism. Well, now it's cycled around again, and that movement seems to be growing now in a new cycle. That movement is quite obviously in direct opposition to the agenda of the global regime, and this can be clearly seen as continued, ongoing, ever more forceful pushback to that agenda. Continuing in The Economist, the chances are of further success for the hard right in forthcoming polls. The FPO is backed by 30% of Austrian voters, comfortably beating its rivals of the left and right ahead of elections next year. The alternative for Germany is in second place at 21%, far ahead of any of the parties in the country's existing three-way coalition with important state elections due next year. Polls in Belgium show that one populist party is leading the pack and the other is joint second, having narrowly come top in France's election to the European Parliament in 2019. Ms. Le Pen's National Rally Party now looks as though it will trounce Emmanuel Macron's allies come the next such ballot in June. Ms. Le Pen is all but assured another slot in the French presidential runoff in 2027. Would a Wilders administration tip the EU scale in favor of populist policies? In one important way, it already has. Restricting migration is the hard right's clarion call. But centrist parties on both right and left have already shifted toward tougher policies in many countries, including the Netherlands. And they go on a bit about immigration. Beyond that, it seems doubtful that those on the political fringes will have much impact at EU level. For one, while parties of the hard right are sometimes lumped together as a single entity, in truth, they often disagree. Mr. Orban frequently takes a pro-Kremlin stance in EU meetings, for example, holding up sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. His supposed ally, Georgia Maloney in Italy, staunchly backs Ukraine alongside most other EU countries. Now, disagreements like the one they've mentioned over support for Ukraine, in quotes, is the sort of thing that makes us as outside observers question whether or not this person is actually committed to the populist cause in a given nation, in this case, Georgia Maloney. And that makes sense. We should ask those questions. We should keep an eye on these sorts of things. But you have to remember each country is different and the demands of that country are going to be different. The people of these countries think different things. And so if you're going to be a legitimate populist, you have to be responsive to what the people actually believe, even when they're wrong. And we see Donald Trump doing that as well. Sometimes you just got to walk down the path for a little while until the people realize what's going on and they change their minds. They can be pushed and prodded. People can suggest alternatives as Trump often does. But you can't be seen as a good and faithful populist leader without responding to the people. Ultimately, you have to be there as a tribune of the people. And a lot of people wouldn't find that a satisfactory answer. And I guess on some level, I can understand that people believe that our leaders have the best access to information. They're supposed to know what to do in every situation. They're supposed to say the right thing in every situation. But people have a whole range of perspectives on what that would even be in any situation. And those arguments can be had in good faith. There isn't always only one right answer, and there's not only one right answer immediately. Even if you're leading, you still actually do have to be responsive. And if you're not responsive to the will of the people, then how can you call yourself a populist leader? The point of trying to hand government legitimately back to the people 
is to create a situation where we're not just trading in and out the man who's going to tell us all what to do. Back to the article in The Economist. This makes coherent alliances to take on the dominant centrists hard. Populists are often too busy picking fights with Brussels rather than working to change the EU's direction. Mr. Wilders also wants a referendum on leaving the EU, for which there is little support in the Netherlands. The chances of his getting a proposal to hold one through Parliament seem remote. At the European Parliament, hard-right MEPs are split between two rival parties, ranging from the somewhat Eurosceptic to the openly xenophobic. No major EU job has ever gone to anyone from outside the political center. And when they are describing the political center here relative to the EU, they are talking about people firmly committed to that globalist vision, to that vision of centralization, where rather than this collection of European countries, independent sovereign nations with sovereign leaders looking out for the citizens of those nations, they come together in a major body called the European Union that just makes its decisions by itself and then calls them democratic and representative of the entirety of Europe. It might be time to hear the word centrist and just think of centralizationist from the article. And politicians with populist promises on the campaign trail have a tendency to moderate once in office, especially if they have to share power. Dutch coalition programs are crafted over many months, leaving plenty of opportunities for centrists to force compromise. Skipping down. Even if he makes it to the prime minister's office, he is likely to be at the head of a minority government with partners who will want to restrain his worst urges. This sounds just like Donald Trump and the environment he faced with those on the uniparty right who were committed to making sure that Donald Trump could not exercise the full power and authority of his office. And just based on our system, that is obviously a much more serious problem than it is in Europe because the president of the United States isn't a leader of parliament or a prime minister. He is also the commander in chief of the armed forces. And we had a uniparty unite to subvert the president. The article in The Economist concludes this way. Perhaps the main concern in Europe is that the Dutch result is a signal. Voters there are seen as electoral trendsetters. The Netherlands was among the first countries to see its political scene fragment away from big tent centrist parties of the left and right starting in the 1980s. Dutch populists became a fixture of public life before that happened in most other countries. Plenty will worry that Mr. Wilder's victory is an omen with more to come. So what we're seeing in the central narrative in the official story from these very pro-regime sources, the understanding and acceptance and normalization, as they said, of this populist brand of politics. This is something that is entering the public understanding. And unavoidably so. It's not just Donald Trump. It's not Trumpism. It's not MAGA. It's not something that they can continue to dismiss with claims about racism or sexism or homophobia or Islamophobia. And this isn't just the anti-wokeness preached by the uniparty right. This is populism. This is about the people getting involved in a movement and trying to claw back power for themselves in nations all around the world. That is a wide-scale rejection of the global regime's agenda worldwide and happening on the same timeline to the point where the more of it that happens, the more of it will happen. Now, it's very hard to be certain about what is happening in countries across the world. We can look for a variety of different reports. We can listen to independent commentators who are trusted in those countries talking about those issues. We can remember it's all just information among other information. We can make sure that we are looking at what maps onto reality and trying to pick up patterns and understand what it all means in the big picture. We can look to parallels from other countries and see the same kinds of dynamics evolving and understand where those similarities align. Though it's really difficult, if not impossible, to understand 
what is going on in countries around the world all the time, up to the minute, in real time. But as far as I can tell, it really does seem like the global regime is on full retreat around the world. And when we look across the range of issues and how the public consciousness is reacting relative to all these different verticals, whether it's immigration or national security or the economy or the currency or foreign wars, whatever, pick your issue on each one of those verticals. Things seem to be headed in the same direction. And across the board, that is in direct opposition to the agenda that the global regime has been pushing. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Elon Musk announced X, formerly Twitter's version of AI, an AI chatbot similar to ChatGPT. It's called Grok and how the advantages of Grok would be that it was not restricted in what it was able to talk about. And it was not restricted in the language it was using. It was supposed to have, it was built to have a bit of an attitude and a sense of humor, and it wasn't going to be restricted on what information it could take in and process and how that should give that platform grok an advantage over chat GPT because it doesn't have the same garbage in garbage out problem. And it's not built to represent a censored and politically correct version of reality. And it's kind of funny because you might remember Stephen Colbert back when he used to host the Colbert Report did a White House correspondence dinner where he famously said that reality has a well-known liberal bias. The funny thing is that the platform out of these two, ChatGPT versus Grok, that clearly and truthfully represents reality is also clearly not the platform with the liberal bias. The platform with the liberal bias is the one that is just straight up ignoring and denying entire segments of reality. You actually need to move outside of reality to create a situation that yields that sort of liberal bias. It's just liberal bias. It's got nothing to do with reality. And so not long after Elon's announcement, it was announced that Sam Altman was to be removed as CEO of OpenAI. OpenAI, of course, being the group that created ChatGPT, also a group that happens to count Elon Musk as one of its founders. Naturally, all the tech publications have covered that situation and all its drama. Is Sam Altman actually out? Is he being brought back in? Is he going to be brought back in and then pushed out again? Well, on Thursday, we had... An interesting headline in Reuters, OpenAI researchers warned board of AI breakthrough ahead of CEO ouster, sources say. Ahead of OpenAI CEO Sam Altman's four days in exile, several staff researchers wrote a letter to the board of directors warning of a powerful artificial intelligence discovery that they said could threaten humanity. Two people familiar with the matter told Reuters. The previously unreported letter and AI algorithm were key developments before the board's ouster of Altman, the poster child of generative AI, the two sources said. Prior to his triumphant return late Tuesday, more than 700 employees had threatened to quit and join backer Microsoft in solidarity with their fired leader. The sources cited the letter as one factor among a longer list of grievances by the board leading to Altman's firing among which were concerns over commercializing advances before understanding the consequences. Reuters was unable to review a copy of the letter. The staff who wrote the letter did not respond to requests for comment. After being contacted by Reuters, OpenAI, which declined to comment, acknowledged in an internal message to staffers a project called QSTAR, and it is written as the letter Q with an asterisk after it and a letter to the board before the weekend's events, one of the people said. An OpenAI spokesperson said that the message sent by longtime executive Mira Murati alerted staff to certain media stories without commenting on their accuracy. Some at OpenAI believe QSTAR could be a breakthrough in the startup search for what's known as artificial general intelligence, one of the people told Reuters. OpenAI defines AGI as autonomous systems 
that surpass humans in most economically valuable tasks. Given vast computing resources, the new model was able to solve certain mathematical problems, the person said on condition of anonymity, because the individual was not authorized to speak on behalf of the company. Though only performing math on the level of grade school students, acing such tests made researchers very optimistic about QSTAR's future success, the source said. Reuters could not independently verify the capabilities of QSTAR claimed by the researchers. So what do we have so far? QSTAR is this new discovery that has potentially signaled an advance in their quest for artificial general intelligence. They want that sort of AI that could take over humanity and threaten the existence of absolutely everyone because it's going to do things so much better than we can possibly imagine doing them. And right now it does math at a junior high level. So I guess that's probably pretty close. I mean, with what we consider education to be in America right now, doing math at a junior high level is more than could ever possibly be expected from most American public school educated children, at least in urban environments. Researchers consider math to be a frontier of generative AI development. Currently, generative AI is good at writing and language translation by statistically predicting the next word and answers to the same question can vary widely. But conquering the ability to do math where there is only one right answer implies AI would have greater reasoning capabilities resembling human intelligence. This could be applied to novel scientific research. For instance, AI researchers believe. So AI researchers believe that if they can get AI to do math at a high level, that would resemble human intelligence and then they can set AI on a path to creating novel scientific research. But can't scientists do math? Are we being held back scientifically by an inability for scientists to access math? Or are we just waiting for AI to do physics at such an extraordinary level that it could just tell us, hey guys, you know what? I created an even better nuclear bomb. Hey guys, hey, you know what? I've created an even better global pandemic. Hey guys, uh, you know what? I figured out how we can make sure that the sun doesn't destroy the earth to the point of all of us dying and all I'm going to need all of humanity and never any AI like myself to do is sacrifice all their money, all their time, all their resources and all their sovereignty. Oh, and also all of their moral concerns about how we are now also figuring out, Hey guys, what about if we just use this machine to depopulate the entire earth? Is that the kind of novel science they're attempting to create here? Unlike a calculator that can solve a limited number of operations, AGI can generalize, learn, and comprehend. It is going to science so hard and so creatively that it will think Oppenheimer totally inventing the nuclear bomb after being signed up to the Manhattan Project at Bohemian Grove is the stuff of junior high math students. But let's go on with the Reuters article. In their letter to the board, researchers flagged AI's prowess and potential danger. The sources said without specifying the exact safety concerns noted in the letter. There has long been discussion among computer scientists about the danger posed by highly intelligent machines. For instance, if they might decide that the destruction of humanity was in their interest. Researchers have also flagged work by, quote, an AI scientist team, the existence of which multiple sources confirmed. The group formed by combining earlier, quote unquote, code gen and quote unquote, math gen 
teams was exploring how to optimize existing AI models to improve their reasoning and eventually perform scientific work. One of the people said, Altman led efforts to make ChatGPT one of the fastest growing software applications in history and drew investment and computing resources necessary from Microsoft to get closer to AGI. In addition to announcing a slew of new tools in a demonstration this month, Altman last week teased at a summit of world leaders in San Francisco that he believed major advances were in sight. Wait, a summit of world leaders in San Francisco? Was that the one with Xi Jinping? Oh, yes, of course it was. Here's what he said. Four times now in the history of OpenAI, the most recent time was just in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten to be in the room when we've sort of pushed the veil of ignorance back and the frontier of discovery forward. And getting to do that is the professional honor of a lifetime. This is what he said at the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. A day later, the board fired Altman. Now, naturally, the conversation soon moved to and was moved by Elon Musk, one of the founders of OpenAI. Elon Musk on Wednesday evening posted on X, formerly Twitter, Extremely concerning exclamation point with a link to that very article from Reuters. He then went and quote tweeted himself writing Q star Anon, like Q Anon with an asterisk in the middle that Q asterisk Q star referencing the content of that very article and the mysterious letter claiming that this Q star advance was the next step toward artificial general intelligence. What an accomplishment, potentially the greatest breakthrough in all of mankind's scientific history, and also potentially the very thing that destroys all of us. It's like a nuclear bomb, but even more nuclear and even more bomby, the sort of thing that could only be thought up by an An artificial general intelligence that was so good at math that it could outperform a junior high school math student and was so creative that it could create novel scientific research just by having the capability to do math at the same level of other scientific researchers. But of course, because it's AI, because it's the machine, it's as smart as like 10,000 of them at once. It can do math so fast, so much faster than a normal computer can do math. It does math so, so fast. All we have to be able to do is give it human creativity. <laughs> we have to figure out how to write into the code of this AI or, you know, allow it to learn it all by itself. We're just going to imbue this machine with human creativity and spontaneity and also human desires and motivations. And if we also fill it with all of the latest scientific research, but of course, censored according to the needs of political correctness, and various global communist agendas. Well, you know, but besides that, all scientific research, so, so good at math. We just need to imbue this thing with that spontaneous human creativity. And once we've done that, holy moly, it's going to change everything. It'll be the greatest weapon that society has ever produced. And once we have it, it's going to think of something so much more dangerous than the nuclear bomb. It's going to think of the sort of thing that could completely take over our world and simply decide on its own to eliminate all of us. We are going to create this thing in order to hopefully get this thing to eventually create itself. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to tell all the standard issue villagers of the world that this thing that's going to eventually create itself once we create it first, that's going to kill everyone. Assuming that nuclear bombs and pandemics and climate change don't kill everyone first. And you see, the thing is, 
all of these problems, these existential threats for which we need to give up all our money, power, control, everything. They are totally 100% real, at least as real, if not more real than that car driving off that ramp, spinning around 3000 times in the air, going two and a half miles before exploding in a burst of flame and definitely not being terrorism. It's even more real than that. Now, most people believe that Elon Musk is an extraordinarily intelligent person who has specific knowledge related to these issues, not only because he's able to think about these issues competently himself. He is fully informed on all the various aspects. His mind is specifically suited for this type of thinking, and he engages in it quite a lot. He also has direct access to those people researching in this field, and he has direct access through his own business relationships and involvement in exactly this sort of thing. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to this stuff, as well as anyone possibly could, or so we are led to believe. And in response to this claim that is made in this letter about Q star, Elon takes to X, formerly Twitter, and posts Q star anon, which to most people out there immediately signals Oh, isn't that like a uh, dangerous conspiracy theory that all of us know is an evil psyop and definitely, definitely very wrong and dumb. And we can know that without ever even looking at it or thinking about it. Yes. So what is Elon Musk saying? Well, <laughs> that's a mystery. What could Elon possibly be saying about Q star when he's saying Q star anon, and we all know that Q anon is a bad, dangerous, and stupid conspiracy theory believed only by stupid people and only taken seriously by stupid people. Well, I mean, Elon can't possibly be saying that this Q star artificial general intelligence mysterious letter thing could possibly be some stupid conspiracy theory. So I guess what he's saying remains purely the subject of mystery. Now, most people are focused on Elon Musk and his mentioning of Q at all. Elon either is a conspiracy theorist or he isn't, and he's just joking about it. But either way, he's drawing attention to this very dangerous conspiracy theory, even though it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not even a theory. It's just a bunch of posts information among other information that makes people go and try to figure out what the posts mean. And they end up what accidentally researching. Yes, it's very dangerous, but it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy. It's not a theory. It's just information and people decide what to make of the information. There's not even a coherent set of ideas. And I've written about this at great length, the entire idea of a QAnon conspiracy theory that is then this group of people who takes on all these dangerous qualities. That is just completely preposterous. Now, it's clearly a psyop, but the mainstream media is a psyop. It doesn't even matter if it's a psyop run by good people for good reasons or bad people for bad reasons. All that matters is how people actually interacted with it in the real world. And it's not that bad. It made people wake up and start researching and different people with different forms and degrees of discernment have reached a whole bunch of different conclusions. And some of them are very plausible, so plausible that we actually see them playing out in the real world. And other ones seem kind of silly and implausible. And as far as I can tell, there is no proof of them playing out in the real world, but it doesn't mean they won't in the future. It could be that something that sounds crazy to me now is still true regardless. And one day I might realize it's true, even though I didn't pay attention to it because I thought the people saying it were crazy. That's how life goes. This is how the awakening process goes. Many of us are coming alive and understanding this and understanding. Yes, people are wrong sometimes on the way to being right. In fact, it's very hard to just spontaneously be right about a whole wide range of subjects, some of them extremely complicated. 
You can't actually just watch 10 minutes of television and be right about very complex issues, having never heard of them prior. Although we pretend that's exactly what happens in the real world. All of the standard issue villagers out there watch 10 minutes of mainstream media news. They hear a name or they hear about an event that they'd never spent a second thinking about ever before in their lives. And a few minutes later, they feel like they can explain what happened at an expert level, understanding that everybody else is going to get the same story and will then agree with them. They can be right without knowing anything about a subject they just heard of 10 minutes ago. And of course, that's the exact thinking that they apply to QAnon. Now, I don't need to defend Q or quote unquote QAnon. As I said, I've written about it at length. I'll let that speak for itself. It's called a story about reality. You can find it on the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. If you would like to read it, I have also recorded myself reading those essays and you can find those if you scroll back a few months on the podcast. But while the standard issue villagers are out there arguing about whether or not it's appropriate or dangerous or irresponsible for Elon Musk to reference QAnon in a post, all of them seem to be missing what actually matters about this, which is the fact that Elon is essentially calling this danger, this widespread existential threat of AI, a conspiracy theory, as far as I can see. And if you don't like my interpretation, that's just fine. But I think the proper framing for this issue is this is a form of power projection from the people whose power persists to the extent that they are continually able to project the sort of power that puts everyone else in existential danger if it is decided that this power should ever be unleashed. It kind of reminds me when Elon Musk was talking about the Tesla that was sent up to space when he said, it looks so ridiculous and impossible. You can tell it's real because it looks so fake, honestly. But hey, I guess it's just in the eye of the beholder. Everything is totally real, at least as real as that car going off the ramp. I mean, hitting the blockade and then flying 10 feet in the air the length of a football field. Now, I know that that does not even come close to catching us up from the last five days, but we're just going to chip away at it and make our own little Michelangelo this week. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!